John chapter number three. We'll just jump right in. Uh, we've been in the middle of a series that I've titled Refocus, and we've been going through the Gospels and uh, keeping a focus on Jesus and seeing uh, who he is, what he did, what he taught, what he was like throughout the Gospels. Uh, honestly, I think that uh, many people have a, uh, a view of Christ that's not necessarily compatible with Scripture. We have, uh, uh, maybe I shouldn't say we, many people have the idea of what he's been uh, per portrayed as through uh, imperfect examples throughout Christianity, throughout religion and things, uh, depictions in our culture and such things. And so I want to refocus on Jesus and get back to him. We can look at all the other people in Scripture. We can look at all the other characters, and we're encouraged by them. We look at men like we've been doing with Daniel and seeing his life and who he was and what he did, and we can be encouraged to be more like Daniel. We can look at Apostle Paul and his ministry. We can look at failures of some of the men and be glad we're not like them, right? And uh, I say that a little bit sarcastically, but anyway, just a little bit. But anyway, as we look throughout Scripture, I want to refocus on who Jesus is and I just put him in a place of prominence, a place of preeminence where he belongs. And so as we've been doing this, we saw uh, two weeks ago, uh, Jesus' first miracle. He was turning the water into wine at uh, the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And his first miracle wasn't bringing someone back from the dead. It wasn't uh, causing the lame to walk or the blind to see. But instead, there was a celebration, celebration of a marriage, which was uh, God's first institution. Marriage was God's idea, and the Lord was kind of putting his stamp of approval on the marriage. It was a time of joy, a time of celebration, and uh, the married couple was at risk of bringing, uh, being brought to shame because they were running out of refreshments at the big celebration. And so Jesus comes in and works behind the scenes. He doesn't bring a lot of attention to it, and he turns the water into wine, saving face for the married couple, uh, the celebration continues and such. And so through that, we saw that even uh, the little things can be brought to Christ. Even the things that seem to be uh, less important, he still cares about. And so we can take all of our needs to him in prayer. We see that he is a, uh, a God of joy and of celebration, of peace and happiness, all these different things. Not that alone, but uh, a lot of people try to take all the fun out of God. They try to take the fun out of Christ, not being a Christian, as if Christianity is some sort of asceticism where you have to go about with a sour look on your face. And that's not who we find Jesus as being. And so anyway, uh, he cares about all of the things in our lives, uh, even the small things, even the things that seem less significant. Last week, what we looked at was that Jesus confronted the religious order of the day that had corrupted the worship of God, and they put obstacles in the way of people coming to God. And so it was at the time of the Passover, all the money changers were there and the sellers of animals. And Jesus made a whip of small cords and drove the animals out of the, the temple court and drove out the, the money changers and kind of tried to put a refocus on the purpose of that. And the purpose of the temple wasn't their uh, religion. It wasn't uh, their money making schemes. It wasn't their corruption, but it was that people would come and meet with God there. It was a place where they could worship. It was a place where uh, uh, God was revealing truth to the people, the sacrificial system and all those things. It was God revealing truth to the people, and religion had gotten in the way. 
And so through all of that, we saw that we need to make sure that our temple isn't profaned, okay? Our place where we're meeting with God. I'm not talking just the church. I'm talking about in our own personal life. We need to make sure that it's not profaned so that neither man, religion, or ourselves are coming between us and God. We get sin in our lives that separates us from God. If we allow men to come between us and God, that needs to go. If we've allowed religion to corrupt our view of God, we need to get it right through the view of God that's in Scripture. That's why we're refocusing, right? So getting all the things out of the way that's between us and God. And so today we're going to be continuing uh, on this same journey and uh, just jumping ahead to the next chapter there in John. And Jesus has caused quite a stir there in Jerusalem. And he is confronting the establishment. He's teaching. He's doing miracles. All while Jerusalem is overflowing with the crowds there at Passover. So with this, publicly, the religious leaders are fuming. They're still kind of licking their wounds because Jesus had put them in their place. And privately, though, we find that there's at least one man amongst them that is wanting to know more about Jesus. There's one man that has a curiosity. Even though he is a religious leader, he says, hold on for a second. There's something more to Jesus than him just being a troublemaker. There's a little bit more to him than him just messing up our status quo. And so he's going to come to Jesus uh, at night because he's afraid of everybody else within the religious establishment. But he's going to come to Jesus to try to ask him a few questions, and Jesus is going to turn his world upside down. And uh, Jesus has a way of doing that. We think we know who he is. We think we know what he's about. And then all of a sudden we're confronted with the truth about the matter, and it causes us to either realign with him or realign against him. And that's what ends up happening to many people is they say, uh, I don't want to go the way that he's going, so I'm going to turn against him altogether. That's how Jesus ended up crucified, wasn't it? But there are many people who ended up following him, being his disciples here. And so anyway, we'll be reading about Nicodemus today in John chapter number three. And we're going to go ahead and read a pretty good portion of scripture here, but I think it's important to our story. And so we'll begin with verse number one. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. I like any time in the scriptures I read about the Pharisees because you know it's going to be good. Okay. Every time that Jesus confronts a Pharisee, it's, it ends up being uh, interesting at least. So there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, or whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I told you of earthly things, and you believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? 
And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We thank you for our fellowship and our time together. Thank you so much for your word that we have before us, Lord, and for this account of Nicodemus, Lord. We praise you for it. We just ask you just to help us as we preach it today. God, and direct us. And it be with each person here that they would uh, uh, draw their attention to you and to your spirits working and do exactly that which is needed in the hearts and lives of each person here today. And Lord, I just pray that you guide me as I preach. Help me and strengthen me through your spirit. We thank you so much for all you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So as we look at this passage of Scripture, it is a fairly familiar passage, especially verse number 16. And as we've observed in the past, a lot of times the familiar passages uh, start to lose their meaning for us. We have songs that we sing that are great songs. They're ones of great truth, but yet because we've sung them so often, because they become so familiar, they lose their effect. When there's passages of Scripture, we quote them offhand and don't pay a whole lot of attention to them. And it seems like they lose their effect. And whenever we look at John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not uh, perish, but have everlasting life. We find that that verse is often quoted, but we kind of just skip over it like, yeah, that's that's the basics. That's the fundamentals. That's that's the like the ABCs back in school, right? We already know all of those. And so we kind of skip over we kind of lose our uh, lose our love for such passages because of their familiarity but in this context whenever we read it in the the frame here uh, the framework of where it was put in scripture it is a powerful and beautiful passage of scripture that we find it gives insight for us into Jesus heart and it gives insight into his mission and it also presents the gospel so clearly. It's a wonderful passage that we've read here this morning. And so whenever we look at this, uh, it is the account of Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night. Nicodemus was a religious leader, and he came to Jesus wanting some answers because obviously Jesus had been making waves. And as a religious leader, he's wanting to kind of suss him out. He's wanting to figure out what's going on with Jesus. Who is this guy? What's he teaching? Where did he come from? What's going on with him? Is he a threat to our establishment? Does he have something to offer? Is there something that he can give? And so he's got so many questions about Jesus. And so he approached him in a way as he would an equal, uh, as he would a fellow teacher. He says, I know that you are a teacher come from God because no man can do the miracles that you have done except God be with him. And so he's come to this conclusion that he's of God, he's a teacher, but he's not recognized by our organization, so we're a little wary of him. And so he comes to him as a fellow teacher, he comes with the same methods, the same games that he was used to playing, and Jesus flips the script. He says, I'm not going to play by your rules, I'm not going to play your little games that you play, 
And instead, Jesus gets straight to the point. You realize as we're reading through this, it's almost like Jesus wasn't even listening. We know that's not the fact, that Jesus does listen. But Nicodemus is going through all of this introduction and all of this flowery greeting, and he's heaping praise on him, and he's expecting that to be reciprocated. And Jesus just comes right out and says, if you're not born again, you don't see the kingdom of God. Wait a second, that's not what I was coming for. That's not what I was coming to. What are you talking about, Jesus? I wanted you to acknowledge me as a teacher. I wanted us to go through all of this. We can discuss theology and we can look at this as uh, fellow theologians. And Jesus just says, hold on for a second. There's a greater need at play. And so with this, he turns Nicodemus's word, world upside down. And this night is going to end up changing Nicodemus's life. We're going to find later on that Nicodemus is a defender of Jesus. Whenever all the other religious leaders are like, we've got to do something about this guy, Nicodemus says, just wait a little while. He's defending him. He's trying to kind of get them off of his trail a little bit. And then we find whenever Jesus is crucified, Nicodemus is one of the ones that show up at the burial. And he starts, he's bringing these spices and these bombs. He comes to anoint the body of Jesus, indicating that apparently he has trusted in Christ. He has uh, come to a conclusion about Jesus because all of his fellow religious leaders just crucified Jesus. The last thing that Nicodemus would want to do if he's still aligned with them is to go and anoint the body of the one that they just crucified. That's going to put him in their bad graces, right? So for him to make that decision, he must have become a disciple and a follower of Jesus. But he's got a long way to go before he gets there. And so to, today we're going to look at when Nicodemus finds out that he must be born again. And so we're just going to go through this kind of step by step, if you will. First thing that we're going to look at is how Nicodemus saw himself. Okay, What was his view of self? What did he see himself as being? Okay, And as he was coming to Jesus, he would have saw himself as a good man, a moral man, the best of the best. He was a Pharisee, and the, just a little idea of who the Pharisees are. We, uh, we have a little bit of fun with them whenever we're looking at them in Scripture because they are the ones that are constantly opposed to Jesus coming and trying to trick him and trying to get him stumbled up and things, and Jesus bests them every time. And so we kind of laugh at that. We're entertained by that, or maybe I, maybe it's just me, okay? But in their day, the Pharisees were the religious elites. They were the who's who of their religion. They were the who's who of Judaism. They were the ones who were the the ones everyone looked up to. If they saw a Pharisee in Jesus' day, they would have said, oh, they're spiritual. They are good people. They are some of the best. Oh, if I could be like the Pharisees. Now that's an insult, right? We find that they're not in the Old Testament, and that's because they got their start, their beginning, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I think we can trace their beginning back to the time of Ezra the scribe. Ezra was there as the Jews came out of captivity, out of exile. And the people needed to be taught. They'd been in exile, many of them born in Babylon, and they needed to be taught the word of God. And so Ezra uh, organized a group of priests and a group of Levites to stand before the people, to read the word of God to them, to give them sense, to give them meaning, to explain scripture to them. And so with that, they became a group of people who were zealous for the word of God. They wanted to see the Jews following after God, and they started off on a good foot. They would have been the fundamentalists. They would have been the ones who got everything started here and had a great emphasis on the truths of God's word. But with that 
position and with that authority and with people looking upon them, they began taking that power and that prestige to heart and to their head. And as they started off on a good path, they began adding things to the word of God. They began putting new things upon the people, thinking if these things of God are good and we don't want people going astray, we don't want to go back into captivity, let's put even more on them, make them even more holy, more pure. And they started heaping up all these extra rules. So you get to Jesus' day where they couldn't even pick grain on the Sabbath day when they were starving, right? That was what was going on with the Pharisees. That's where they came from. And so they started off good, guardians of the faith, and they took that position and they became masters of the law, imposing it upon the people. And they were seen as the religious elites. They had made themselves wealthy. They had gotten themselves positions of power. And the people looked up to them, but they were also afraid of them and oppressed by them. That's kind of messed up, isn't it? And so getting an idea of what Nicodemus thought of himself, he would have thought that he was one of the greatest of Israel. He would have been proud. He would have been lifted up. He would have said, of all of the Jews, I keep to all of the laws. I make sure and live as an example before everyone else. I'm a defender of the faith. I'm an instructor of the word. I'm an example of holiness. That's who he was. And that's what people would have thought of him. He would have been proud of his position. He would have been proud of his purity. And he would have thought that all of the power, the respect, and the wealth that he had was just one of the perks of being so faithful to God. Look at how God is blessing me for the good works that I've done. This shows God's approval on my life because look at how I've prospered. To give a little bit of evidence of what I'm saying to back this up so you don't think I'm just making this up, you look at Luke chapter number 18. You can write it down, look at it later. But uh, you have the story of the praying Pharisee. He goes into the temple, thrusts out his chest, and he begins praying and saying, God, this is all the good things that I do. I pray this often. I fast this way, and I give this, and I do that. And I thank you, God, that I'm not like this publican over here, this wretched, filthy, miserable soul. I am glad that I'm good, and he's wicked. That was what the Pharisees were, okay? We can also look in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. So what is he saying? He says, you have to be better than they are. And the Jews are looking on and they're gasping and saying, they are the elites, they are the best, and we have to be better than them? That was the point of what Jesus was getting across. Because he's telling them, just like he's telling Nicodemus here, it's not your righteousness, it's not your religion, it's not your rituals, it's not all your rules, it's not all the things that you have done that makes you right with God. But they didn't know that. They didn't realize that. We can look at the Apostle Paul before, whenever he was Saul of Tarsus. He says he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And he was persecuting the church, thinking he did God a favor. He says, look at how spiritual that I am. I am so zealous for God. I'm willing to kill people that break his rules. I'm willing to kill people that I don't think quite align up with the faith that I practice. Look at how zealous I am. You can go back through religious history. You can find plenty of people just as zealous as what he was, right? That was Phariseeism. 
They were the elites. They were the spiritual. They were the rule keepers. They were the upper echelon of society when it came to religious matters. And so as he comes to Jesus, he sees himself as being righteous, as one of God's best specimens. And he was used to people praising him for his good works, for his religious piety. He was used to getting the respect and the awe and the admiration because of his religion. And that was his identity. That was who he was, everyone looking up to him. And so you couldn't have found a better Jew than Nicodemus. And so as he's coming to Jesus, he's expecting Jesus to be impressed. That is his ex expectation. He's thinking, yes, this is a fellow religious teacher. I'm one of the best. I am a ruler of the Pharisees. And Jesus is going to be in awe of me. We're going to be equals. We're going to have all this going on. But how was it that Nicodemus saw Jesus? Here is this Pharisee, this re religious zealot, the one that's at the top of the heap. He approaches to the Son of God, and we find in verse number 2, it says, The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him. You can tell a lot about what someone is thinking by what they say, right? And said unto him, Rabbi, we... Being the coward he was, he wasn't willing to say I. He wasn't going to put that forward. We know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. He says, I'm willing to put out there and acknowledge that you're not of the devil, that you're not out there by yourself, or that God is with you because of the miracles. The miracles are evidence. The Bible says the Jews require a sign. And well, the sign worked for Nicodemus, right? He says, we know that you are of God because of the miracles. We know that you are a teacher. I'm willing to bestow the title of rabbi upon you as one of my equals. And so his expectation after verse number two, he thinks that verse number three should go something like Jesus saying, oh, I admire your work and I've heard your teachings and you are a great teacher of Israel. I'm happy with all the things that you have done and you probably have lots that you can teach me. But that's not what Jesus responds with, is it? Nicodemus comes and he says, I have some questions for you. You put yourself as being a teacher. I see you as a fellow man. I see you as someone not of our circle, not of our uh, group here. And I want to come to you. And there's some things that maybe I can teach you and you can teach me. We need to get this figured out. He sees them maybe from a different school of thought. Nicodemus coming to Jesus here, it would be almost like a Catholic and a Protestant meeting together. This is the idea that Nicodemus has in his mind, is I'm from one stripe, they're from another stripe. We're going to come together. We're going to have a religious discussion as equals, as mutuals. And that's not what happens whatsoever. It wasn't going to be two Jewish teachers discussing theology he didn't see Jesus as being God. He didn't see him as a savior. He saw him as a religious figure that might help him or might have something to offer as Nicodemus was working hard to be spiritual, to be religious. He says, I want to interact with this guy and maybe this will place something else, another feather in my cap, if you will. And so you've probably caught on by now that Nicodemus has evaluated himself as way too high. He sees himself as way greater than what he is. He has too high of an opinion of himself and too low of an opinion of Jesus. 
And I believe that would go along with many people today. We're pretty good people, we think, right? Good person. And so we'll go to Jesus just to get him to help us along. Isn't that what religion has painted? That Jesus is just something else you need to add into your life. That he may have a few of the answers. He might be able to help you along. But most of it I'm going to get by with my own abilities, my own works, my own knowledge. And so we come to God in this idea, almost like uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Look at how good I am, God. Look at how I've got it all together. Look at all of my good works. I am a moral person. I don't steal. I don't kill. I've been faithful to my wife. I go to church regularly. I tithe. I do this. I do that. God, look at how good I am. And I know there's something more to it. And so if I can just add Jesus in there on the side just to give me that little bit to get me over the top. Isn't that what religious teaches? That's how they see Jesus. That's how Nicodemus saw Jesus. They knew that Jesus came from God, but they weren't completely sure about where he played into the picture. You look into today's religions, and they will acknowledge Jesus. They will give him uh, titles, and they will give him praise, and they will heap respect upon him. But at the end of the day, it's all about them, and Jesus is just on the side, just to help them along. Okay. Whenever you start looking at works-based religion, whenever you start looking at uh, these different religious systems that we have, the emphasis is upon me. The emphasis is upon what have I done? How good of a person am I? And then you ask someone in that situation, then why did Jesus die on the cross? If you're such a good person and God is so happy with what you're doing in your performance, why did Jesus have to die? I don't know. It helps somehow. Right? Isn't that the perspective that people have? This is the perspective that Nicodemus had. I'll just add Jesus in because he helps. I don't get it. I don't understand it. He's got something in it. He's of God. We'll just add him in here. I'll go to him at night. I'm not going to let anybody else know, but I'm going to kind of pull him alongside so maybe I can benefit in some way. That was Nicodemus's opinion of Christ. But how was it that Jesus saw Nicodemus? Was he impressed by him? Was he going to him and saying, oh man, you're one of the good ones. You've got this figured out. You're exactly what I wanted people to be like whenever I gave the Ten Commandments and whenever I gave the law back in Leviticus. Boy, you're one of the best specimens of Judaism. Was that Jesus' response to Nicodemus? Instead, we find that Jesus looked through all of his outward trappings, through his facade that he had on, because Nicodemus had done a good job of cleaning himself up, of putting on a, a, a nice mask to play the part, to look religious, and Jesus looked through all of that. He may have been coming strutting like royalty in all of his robes and his garments. He may have been getting all of the titles and all the acclamation from the people there in Jerusalem. But whenever he come to Jesus, Jesus just simply looks at him and says, you need a do-over. Right? You must be born again. So Nicodemus comes to him and says, hey, look at how good I have performed in my life. And Jesus is like, no, try again. Yeah. Right? Can you imagine what a what a punch to the gut that would have been for Nicodemus as he comes strutting in as his very religious self with all of these uh, all of these uh, things that he could produce all of these works that he could pile up and say look at this this is my qualifications and Jesus is like no that won't do it not good enough and so whenever he says you must be born again he's saying all that you're doing won't cut it. 
And so Nicodemus is confused by this term to be born again. He says, I can't go back to the beginning and start over. Sometimes we have regrets. Sometimes we're like, if I could do it over again. Jesus is like, you must be born again. And so Nicodemus is like, okay, let's just erase all of this. Let's go back in time. Be born again, and I'm going to start from a baby, and I'm going to have to do this all over again and perform better the next time than I did this time. Now, that's a scary thought, isn't it? And so Nicodemus says, I'm an old man already. How can I go back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? And so Jesus has to start explaining to him what he means here. And I'm glad that's not what he meant. We don't have to go back and be physically born again. All the mothers in here would be very glad that their children don't have to do that again, right? But see, the thing is that Nicodemus was born once in the flesh. And at physical birth, he was born in a fallen state. We've inherited a sinful flesh from our great-great-great-great-grandfather Adam, right? Every man has been a sinner and woman. Did y'all cop out on me with that one? <laughs> Every man and woman has been a sinner. Everyone that's been born of Adam's race has been a sinner. And so whenever Jesus looked at Nicodemus and he says, you might have the outside prettied up a little bit, but your flesh is still sinful. There's still a sinful and corrupted man inside. doesn't matter how good you are, how much you've got religion down, you still don't cut it. You're still, uh, even though you may be good by man's standards, you are still a sinner. You're still spiritually dead. You've been made alive physically. Now you need to be born again. You need to be, need to be made alive spiritually. And so Jesus saw a need in Nicodemus that Nicodemus didn't even realize he had. Nicodemus has a problem, though, because Nicodemus didn't bring himself into the world. He had nothing to do with his physical birth, right? And all of his works and all of the things that he's done and all of his religion clearly wasn't enough to bring about his second birth spiritually, to make him alive spiritually before God. And so how is it that he is to be born again? Now we saw that Nicodemus had the wrong view of himself and he had the wrong view of Christ. Christ has now given us the right view of Nicodemus. He must be born again. And his question is, how can I be born again? Now he needs a right view of Christ. And so who was Jesus? Who is Jesus? And for him to get uh, an answer to his question, he found out instead of all of the questions he thought he had, that Jesus was the answer to the one thing that he actually needed. He was spiritually dead in his sin. He needed to be born again. And Jesus came to make a way for that to happen. Mm -hmm. And so in verse number 14, Jesus takes Nicodemus all the way back to the Old Testament. And he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And so Nicodemus, being a master of the law, of having the Old Testament pretty much memorized, he knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Maybe not everybody in here does, though. Because what we find in, in this reference here, whenever Moses and the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They were rebellious. They sinned against God repeatedly. Every time God did something for them, they complained about it over and over and over and over again. And at one point in time, they were, uh, they were mumbling and complaining about God and sinning against him. And God sent fiery serpents, poisonous snakes down amongst the children of Israel, and they were being bit by these poisonous snakes. But God still loved his people. He had mercy upon his people. And rather than uh, wiping them out by snake bite, he said, I'm going to make a way 
that they can escape the death sentence that they have been dealt. Isn't that what God always does? And so he said, Moses, what I need you to do is fashion a snake out of brass, put it up on a pole, and erect that pole in the midst of the camp. And anytime one of the Israelites are bit by a snake, all they have to do is make their way back to camp and look up on that serpent and they will live. You're not going to find that in any kind of medical encyclopedia. If you ever get bit by a snake, you're not going to be going and looking for a brass snake to heal you. There is nothing about a brass snake on a pole that is going to bring about healing from a snake bite. It was faith that was required. God said, this is what you must do, and they took God at his word. God says, if you look up on the serpent, you will not die of the snake bite. You will live. The one who was destined for death was going to have new life because they expressed faith in what God had told them and the plan that he had put in place and provided them. It was by faith in God's word and in his provision that they were made whole, that they were healed, that they got a second life. And so what is Jesus telling Nicodemus here? He says, as Moses lifted up that serpent, so must the Son of Man, so must Jesus be lifted up. And so we find in verse number 15, that whosoever believeth in him, in Jesus, should not perish but have eternal life. So Nicodemus is saying, okay, my physical life and all of my things that I'm doing isn't going to cut it. If I want eternal life, I need to have a new birth. I need to be made alive, alive spiritually because I have been bitten by sin. I have the venom of sin in my veins. I am dead spiritually. I need to be made alive. And Jesus says, I'm going to be lifted up, up on the cross, that whosoever believeth in me shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so it comes back to the idea of faith. It wasn't that these people, they could have uh, went about their own ways of being healed of snake bite, couldn't they? They could have tried to find someone to suck the poison out. They could have been looking for herbs, maybe got some essential oils. They could have done something to try to bring the serpent, the, the poison out of that snake bite. And if they would have done that, any of their own ways and their own uh, methods, they would have died. But they had to do it God's way. They had to come to that place where the serpent was lifted up and they had to look up in faith and they would be healed. And in order for them to come to that serpent and to look up on it, they had to believe that it would work, right? And so how is a person born again? How is it that we receive newness of life? How is that poison of sin taken care of in our system and how is it that we are made alive spiritually? Jesus was lifted up for our sins. He paid the penalty. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so he says, just as that snake was lifted up, people are going to have to come to me in faith. They're going to have to believe that I am able to take care of the problem that they have, that I am able to make them alive, and they're going to have to look to me if they want to live. And that is the simplicity of the gospel. And it is so difficult because if you would think 
Of all the people in Israel, can you imagine the first one that got bit by the snake? And Moses says, look at the snake and you'll live. And they're like, that's stupid. Right? What does the world say whenever you say you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Stupid. How could that save me? It has to be by my good works. I'm going to become a part of the church. I'm going to go and I want to uh, say these prayers. I'm going to offer these gifts. I'm going to go through these rituals. I'm going to live a good life. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And after all of these things that I do, surely that'll be enough and God will accept me. That's what Nicodemus did. And Jesus says, no, you must be born again. And that happens by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to purge your sins, to forgive your sins, and to make you spiritually alive. It is not by the works of righteousness that we have done, but by his grace he has saved us. And so we see in this that Nicodemus, if any man could be saved by religion, it would have been him. If any man could have been saved by good works, it would have been him. If any man could have kept enough rules to be saved, it would have been him. If any man could have went through enough rituals to be saved, it would have been him. And Jesus looked at Nicodemus and he says, all of those things don't work. You need me. And so Jesus, being the Son of God, came down to this earth to die in our place, to be that one lifted up to take away our sins. And why did he do that? Verse 16 says, For God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It is based upon what he has done because he loves us. It says that we are not, he didn't come to condemn us. He didn't come to guilt and to shame us. He didn't come for our destruction. He came because he loved us to make a way out of our condemnation. We were already bit. He came so we could live. See that? And so with all of these things that we're seeing here today, Jesus gives this religious man, this moral man, this good man, the hard advice that you can't work your way into heaven. You're not going to get there by your good works or your religion. But I've come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. I've come that you may be born again. And we find that eventually Nicodemus, I believe, understands that. Could you imagine whenever Jesus is hanging up on the cross, Nicodemus there in Jerusalem, and he looks up at Jesus hanging on that cross, and it clicks. As Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And I believe he looked unto Jesus. He was born again. I believe one of these days I'll see Nicodemus in heaven. And it's not because he was religious. It's not because he was moral. It was because he realized that Jesus was the Son of God, that he paid the price for sin, and he trusted Jesus' payment on his behalf. And he went to heaven, not trusting because he was a Pharisee, not because he was a Jew, not because he was a good person, but because Jesus died for him. His sins could be forgiven and heaven could be his home. And if you're here today as a Christian, you might say, I know all this. This is elementary. But here's the thing. I've got two takeaways for the Christian. First of all, don't be a Pharisee. 
That's simple enough, isn't it? Don't be a Pharisee. Don't be boasting of your goodness, of your religiosity. Don't be thinking that because you go to church or because you do this or do that, that you're better than anybody else. Because the only thing that you have that the lost in the world does not have is Jesus. It's not anything that you have done or anything that you are that makes you better than anyone else. You simply know the Christ that forgave your sins in spite of you. So don't be a Pharisee. The second thing for us who are Christians in here today, there's a lot of people like Nicodemus in this world. They're confused about who Jesus is. They have questions. They need answers. They may be seeking after the truth, and they need someone to speak to them as Jesus did. Speaking the truth in love. Someone who is willing to cut past all of their uh, jumbled up thoughts and their uh, questions that they have in their mind and just tell them like it is and say, you need to be born again. We need to be living as Jesus. Why did Nicodemus come to Jesus to begin with? He said, God is in him. Mm -hmm. We need to be living like Jesus did so people will see God in us and so that we'll be able to tell them about the God that is in us. But for anyone in here today who may not know for sure that heaven is going to be your home, if you were to close your eyes in death and you don't know for sure what's going to happen on the other side, just as Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. He says, I can take care of that. I can settle that. You say, oh, I don't know. I've been an awful good person, but I'm not sure if I was good enough. I can, I can solve that equation for you. You're not. No one is good enough. It's not by works of righteousness that we have done. The Bible says that, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is by Christ that we are saved because of what he has done. It is simply looking to him as our Savior. It is realizing that you are a sinner, that there is no good works that you can do to remedy that. It's not in the church. It's not in religion. It's not in reforming yourself. It is in the shed blood of Jesus that you are born anew, that you're made physically and spiritually alive, and that you have eternal life. It is because of what Jesus done and not what you have done. And so just as Jesus told Nicodemus, whenever he said there, but whosoever shall believe upon him shall be saved. That's what it takes. See, for someone to look upon that brass snake on the pole, they had to realize they had a need. They had a problem. And they had to look upon that snake out of faith. They had to believe that it could fix it. Do you know that you're a sinner? Do you know there's nothing that you can do about that? Then the only cure that you have for that is look to Jesus and live. The Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is an expression of faith. That is you looking unto that one that was lifted up and saying, I have a problem, I can't fix it. But you said, if I look to you, that you would forgive my sins, that you would cause me to be born. That's what it means to be born again, to look to Jesus as the solution for a problem that you can't fix and call out to him and accept what he has offered for you. And so, in the advice, the words that Jesus told to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Are you? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We thank you so much for this passage of Scripture, how it puts so clearly the need for salvation, Lord, and the 
the futility of religion and of good works and all these things. Lord, you you clearly uh, wiped all that off the table and you made it clear that it is by what you've done on the cross. That is what we have to trust in for salvation. Help us never to be lifted up. Help us to never be a Pharisee thinking that we're anything because of our religiosity. Help us to see the need for those who are around us, Lord, that we would live as Christ before them, and Lord, that we would speak the truth in love. And I pray that if there's one here today that don't know you as their Savior, I pray that today would be the day that they would call upon you, Lord, that they would admit their, their sin and they would trust you to pay that penalty and to take away their sins, to save their soul and fit them to for heaven, Lord. We thank you so much for all that you do for us. We thank you for your love, your mercy, and your forgiveness. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.